there, I want to ask you to consider what is prayer to you? What is prayer to you? As you think about prayer and uh, what you do with it and how you engage it, what is it to you? When I was a kid, uh, I thought prayer, I, like I'm talking a kid like uh, five, six, seven, eight years old. Um, I thought prayer was one of two things. Legitimately, this is what I thought. I thought prayer was either a way for me to get something that I want, right? This is why I communicate with God. It's a way for me to get something that I want or it's a way to avoid something that I find frightening, right? So the extent of my prayer life actually as a kid was, uh, number one, Lord, don't let me have any bad dreams tonight. Right? I play, that was a prayer that I prayed frequently as a kid. Lord, protect me from bad dreams tonight. And then uh, the second one was, Lord, uh, there's this toy that I really want. Would you help me get this toy for my birthday or for Christmas or just get this toy like at, at, at any random point, right? Uh, and so I thought that that's basically the extent of what prayer is and what it is for. And that I needed to kind of let God know how I wanted him to do things for me. And so it wasn't really until I was like late in high school that I started to discover some of the things that prayer actually is, right? Uh, so I, I had at this point in my journey, I had been a believer in a Jesus about five years. And prayer to me seemed like, as I, as I kind of surveyed at this point, uh, prayer to me seemed like it was really only good for um, religious activity Right, so I, kn I know that prayer is uh, something that applies to a relationship with God because it's what I see people who have a relationship with God do, and it's something that we do in our worship service, right? We pray in our worship service. So it's some form of a religious activity, right? Uh, prayer was good for, uh, at this point, I knew prayer was good for confessing my sins, right? Because that was one thing that I, I knew that I was drawn into relationship with God to do, to be able to like confess my sins and receive forgiveness, right? And then... Uh, Beyond that, I thought prayer was a, a manner of me expressing my will and my desires to God. And as a result, it seemed like something that I didn't really need all that often. Right? Because let's be honest about me and the things that I need for my will and my desires. Like My wants could be endless, but at the end of the day, I didn't like really feel like telling God, you know, God, I really want this thing. Could you give this thing to me? Uh, and so, so at the end of the day, like, prayer became about the things I need. And, and in the reality of the society that we live in, like, my parents both had jobs. Like, we, uh, you know, we were well off. We didn't have a lot of needs. And so I, I didn't feel like there were a lot of things that I really had to bring to God. I was pretty smart as a kid, right? So, like, I did well on tests. It wasn't like I was suffering in the uh, academic department. So I wasn't, like, praying, God, help me, like, not fail this test, right? I just didn't feel like I needed much. And so I didn't ask for much. Right? And if prayer is confessing my sins, well, yeah, sure, I'll come across sins every once in a while, but you get through the list and you're done, and that's pretty much all you have to do, right? And so, uh, so as a result, I didn't really sense that I needed prayer. But when I was in late high school, uh, I did start regularly going to a prayer meeting at my church. And I did this uh, mostly out of guilt. 
uh, because this was the thing that you were supposed to do if you were a part of my church. And, and I was uh, involved in leadership to some degree. I was leading uh, worship, and so I thought, well, I should probably show up at the prayer meeting. And, and so what did happen, though, was that uh, I, the Lord, as I went to this prayer meeting, the Lord started to reconstruct my idea of what prayer is and what it's for. Did I always want to go? No. Did I skip sometimes? Yes. Uh, did I go out of sense of guilt? Yes, absolutely. My motivations were not always right, and I did not always want to be there, but every single time that I went, the Lord used it to help renovate my idea of what prayer is. And still today, every single time that I pray with other mature believers, our elder meetings, we, uh, we meet with our uh, elders, and we spend like the first half hour of our, our meetings, our board meetings, in prayer together, right? And as we pray together, uh, I just, like every time I walk away from that, and I'm just like, number one, I don't want to stop praying, right? Because it, like there's just something so beneficial about it, but number two, like there's something different. Like I've learned something deeper about what it means to relate to God as I've prayed with these other mature believers. Every time that I get an opportunity to pray with other mature believers, God is still in the process of renovating me and my perspective and impression of prayer. In fact, this very week, I had an opportunity to pray with someone. And in that moment when I was praying with them, after I finished praying with them, I was like, I walked out of that and realized I've gained a new insight on prayer that I did not previously have, right? So uh, I ask the question again, what is prayer to you? What is it for? Who is it for? Why do we have it? How do you do it? How does it become more than a religious task for you? How does it become an actual delight for you to engage in? Like I said, uh, for me, it was and is a process, but having godly models of prayer has made a tremendous difference for me in my life. So we're in John 17, anticipation right now, and the context that we're in, uh, Jesus is anticipating his death, his departure, right? He's told the disciples, I'm going away. I'm going to leave you. You have a job to do in the meantime, but I am not going to be with you. I'm going to where my father is. And, And so there's in them all of this trepidation and anxiety about the future of kind of this fledgling, fledgling movement that has started, right? B- because Jesus has started with them, but he's going away, and now their power is going to disappear, and they're confused about all of this. There's talk of Jesus' death. They know that people want to kill Jesus in the middle of Jerusalem, where they are right now. And so they, you know, they dealt with all of this instruction from Jesus about how they're going to carry on. And this moment for the disciples is full of intensity of emotion, of overwhelming sort of anxiety in relation to what they're experiencing. And so as Jesus finishes his instruction for them, right, right after he says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right after he says that, he stops he stops. So I imagine, I imagine that the disciples, because we know they got up and left the upper room, that they've, they're, they're in transition from one place to the next. I imagine they've been walking along, and that as they've been walking along and Jesus senses the moment, Jesus stops and turns around and says this to them. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, 
Jesus turns around, he recognizes that what is needed in this moment is prayer. Now, there's a lot that we can digest here, right, from from looking at Jesus' prayer. There are things that we can see that Jesus finds important. There are things that Jesus prays here that are critical to the mission that he has given us. There are things that are very near to God's heart that are in this prayer. But more than any of that, I want us to look at Jesus and ask this question. What is prayer to Jesus? Right, we've been asking that question about us. What is prayer to you? I'm curious, what is prayer to Jesus? Because apparently, Jesus loves it, right? He like goes away for entire days and is just praying and enjoying himself while he's uh, praying. Like he finds it delightful. He does it often. And it's like he's obviously not motivated by a sense of guilt or duty, but a sense of like that he both needs this connection that prayer provides for him and he desires it. Like it's something that's in the depth of his heart. And when he prays, it's powerful. His prayer is powerful. Like so, so this is what I want for us. I want us to spend time in Jesus's prayer meeting. I want us to hear his prayer. I want us to receive it. I want us to look at the best example of what it is to pray, to help us uh, kind of renovate our own impressions of prayer, and maybe, possibly, even let Jesus make some changes to us in this regard. So uh, the next two weeks, we're going to spend the next two weeks listening to Jesus pray for his disciples and the intensity of the moment that they're in and letting him model prayer for us. And as we listen to him, letting the Holy Spirit kind of do his work inside of us to change our own impressions of prayer. So along those lines, I'm going to pray for us as we approach this passage. Lord Jesus, uh, we all have a perspective, uh, a history, um, a baggage that we carry into the realm of prayer. Lord, I, I knew many of us have anxiety about what it means to pray out loud and in front of people. We're afraid of what others might think of us when we speak prayers, and so we keep our prayer life very private. And Lord, I know that others are just have trouble finding uh, it even helpful to spend much time in prayer. And and all of this says that um, that Lord, we just need you to show us what you have to show us about prayer. Lord, we need you to reveal to us the things that you desire to us to know. So Holy Spirit, we give ourselves to you in this time to change our perspective and to meet us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we listen to Jesus pray this week, I want you to pay attention to one thing. I want you to ask this question. What's important to Jesus when he prays. So this is what I'm actually going to have you do. We're going to do a bit of an exercise here. I am going to read the first 14 verses of Jesus's prayer. I'm just going to read them straight through. And what I want you to do is if you have a pen or paper or something like that, I want you to listen asking this question, what's important to Jesus when he prays? And then you know, when we leave today, you have an opportunity to talk about these things. You know, maybe you have an opportunity to point out something that you think I missed, and I would be glad to hear your perspective on that, right? But write down, listen to Jesus's prayer and ask the question, what's important to Jesus when he prays? So I would invite you to listen. I'm just going to read it for you. Listen, uh, John 17, 1. 
It says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So I'm sure you have kind of reflections and ideas. As I listened to this and sat with this passage this week, I want to share what I think are four key important influences behind Jesus's prayers. And the reason I say prayers, it's, it's evident in this prayer right here, but I think they are values that Jesus applies every time that he prays. Right, so four important influence, influences behind Jesus's prayers. This is not my goal this morning. I just want to state this outright. This is not my goal. It is not my desire to give you a rigid formula for how you ought to pray every time that you pray. Instead, what I want to do is th this is an invitation for us to watch Jesus and learn from him and to let that start shaping our own prayer lives. So the first important influence behind Jesus' prayers that I see is number one, relational authenticity relational authenticity. John 17, 1, he starts at the very beginning of his prayer like this. Father, the hour has come. The opening of this prayer is a statement and recognition of the relationship between Jesus and his Father. And then Jesus being very... Uh, very real about the moment that he's in, right? This hour that he's been waiting for, it is an hour that has been being put off and being put off, that they've been approaching it and getting closer and closer to it. And now Jesus is saying, it's finally here. And I, you know, there are all sorts of things in Jesus's soul related to this hour of his death and his resurrection, the things that he's going to suffer. And so he speaks very transparently about these things, but then he addresses God as father. And it's really important and revolutionary that he does that, right? Because the Judaism of Jesus's day had developed a very distant and remote view of God, 
right? So this is, this is kind of how they thought about prayer. The Judaism of Jesus' day, the, the religious leaders, they thought that angels actually had to come and relay messages between us and God. That the only way that, that messages got carried to God is that some other holy beings had to be there to carry the messages back and forth between us and God. And you, what they also did is that they used kind of surrogate titles to emphasize the distance of God from us. So uh, these titles, like similarly to us today, they would be things like the Almighty, the Creator, or even they would just say things like uh, heaven. They would ask for the blessings of heaven because to, to be too personal with God was to infringe on his territory. Right? And then you add to that that all of their praying was primarily mediated for them through ritual. Right? They spoke prayers that had been written down for them in scripture or prayers that had been written down for them through tradition. Uh, the, the prayers that they spoke together or there, there any time in prayer that they spent together, it was primarily located and carried out in their synagogue gatherings. Uh, and it was for certain times and places. Prayer was for certain times and places and always had special boundaries placed around it. Jesus, on the other hand, personally addresses God. In fact, as you look at him, it seems like he's having a bit of a conversation with God. Right? He's kind of just flowing through his like, own stream of consciousness. right? And that's highly problematic for the Pharisees. In fact, they took great issue with it in John 5.18. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That was a long time ago at this point. They were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus addressing God as father is problematic for the Pharisees on two accounts. First is the obvious one, that to claim to be God's son is to make yourself of the same kind as God. And so when a guy like Jesus says, I am of the same kind as God, it was incredibly offensive to the people, right? But this is more applicable, applicable to the prayer that, that Jesus is giving. To speak of God as father is to relate to him on a human level. Right, it is to say it's acceptable for me to address and speak to God as a person with whom I have a normal relationship. So not only was Jesus lifting himself up, like he's blasphemous in their eyes on two counts. He's raising himself up, but then he also is lowering God's status by making God a person to whom you can relate and have a conversation with. But Jesus is not inclined to let tradition mediate his relationship with the Father. In fact, he doesn't need anything to mediate his relationship with the Father. He simply speaks to God out of the abundance of unmediated relationship that they already share. He's like, we already are relating to each other, and I can just speak to you because we already have a relationship. Right? So, so um, church, I've got good news for us that Jesus is our mediator with the Father, which means that we, as believers in Jesus, actually have the privilege to approach and address the Father as if we have a relationship with him, because we do. Like, in the same way that Jesus approached the Father, we can do that with him out of an abundance of our relationship with him, because he mediates the relationship for us. So who are we in relationship to the Father? 
Well, I just want to share with you some truths about who we are in relationship to the Father because this is what the Bible has to say, some of what the Bible has to say about us. Like Jesus, I am God's beloved child. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Like, the, the idea here is that like, God loves me like a dad loves his kid. Like, I, I, my father loves me and, and wants me to respond and wants to respond to me, and I can talk to him just like I would talk to my dad. And here's another one. Who are we in relationship to the Father? Like Jesus, I am baptized in and filled with the Spirit. It says for, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The idea is, is that all of the believers in Jesus, we all have the Holy Spirit, and as a result, that gives us access to God so that wherever I am, God hears me because he's living in me. Another one, like Jesus. I am God's representative. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to the world through us, which means that as those who are sent from God to represent God, we have a special ear with God and his undivided attention because of the role that he's called us to play. Finally, like Jesus, I am a priest. Did you know that? There's nothing special about a guy whose title is pastor. We're all priests. We all have the opportunity to step in the world and convey relationship with God and uh, the presence of God in the places that we step into. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Priests are the ones who have access to God. And because of access to God, like that means that we, as we are right now, we don't need anything to mediate because Jesus is mediating for us and we have full access to the presence of God. So the implication of all of this for us is that we don't need prayers that someone else has written down in order for us to interact with God. We don't need verses to repeat or recite. Now, I am not saying that those things cannot teach you and inform how you pray. Like, you can let scripture and prayers written down by others turn your mind towards your relationship with Christ and your current circumstances. Like, I get, like, you can use those as a beneficial means of helping your spiritual life, but prayer is not, it's a vehicle for our relationship with Jesus, the relationship that we have, which means there's a degree to which we have to be authentic in our prayers. Like, can you imagine primarily related, I'm saying primarily, I know you have conversation, but I'm saying primarily relating to your spouse by reading them love notes that were written by somebody else. Can you just imagine that for a second? Like, that, that the primary vehicle of your relationship with your spouse is, is all the things that somebody else has written down. Well, that's not an authentic relationship, right? That's not who you are. That's, that's the words that somebody else has developed, and you're just using that to mediate your relationship with them. But it, instead, our prayer life, like Jesus' prayer life did, gives us the opportunity to display this reality that I can relate to God like I love him and I am loved by him. That's what our prayer life has the opportunity to display. I can relate to God like I love him and I am loved by him. 
And that kind of relating is a freedom and a privilege that we are invited into. Okay, so that's the first important facet of how Jesus prays, important influence behind his prayer. The second one is this. The glory of God. It's huge. He says it like a total of, through the whole prayer, mentions something about glory a total of eight different times. Right, so, so John 17, verse two, he says to God, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth. So, so while some may look at this and say, you know, Jesus is just praying for himself here, uh, I think there is a reason Jesus talks about himself in the third person at this point. It's because he's modeling that the prayer is not for something that he needs, but that it, it, he's instead displaying something that is central to all effective prayer. Right, so uh, just think on this for me for a second. When Jesus uh, teaches the disciples how to pray, they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray because you pray in such a different way that we don't totally understand, but we wanna understand it, so teach us how it is that you pray. How does Jesus start that prayer that he teaches them? Our Father, so our Father, the relationship piece first, right? And then he says, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, that Father piece is unusual, but it emphasizes the personal relationship. And then if you look at the first line of the, the first lines of the Lord's Prayer, it's not merely as a, a, a prayer to recite, but it's informing the shape that our prayers might take. So you see Jesus apply the concepts from the beginning of that prayer to what he does here with his prayer with the disciples, right? So when he says in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, that is a way of emphasizing God's glory, his perfection, his otherness from things of the world, that he is kind of utterly separate from everything that we might be. And then it's, he says, your kingdom come and your will be done. When these things happen, if you read the prophecies of the Old Testament, when God's kingdom comes, his glory is revealed. His kingdom is always connected to his glory. The glory of God is revealed in the earth. When the kingdom breaks in, when the will of God overrides the will of men, God's glory shines through. And Jesus is taking the concepts that he introduced to the disciples there, and he's applying them to this prayer that he's praying in this moment. He's anticipating the fact that God is going to be glorified over the next several days, as the reality of his identity is conveyed through his death and resurrection. So verse five, he says this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So imagine a V shape for me. Jesus and the Father were up here. And Jesus, this is where the Father, the, the presence of the Father is. And Jesus left the glory, the presence of the Father, this place where he was like in pristine love with the Father. He left it and he came down to earth and he's now doing his work on earth, right? But th this story is not complete. Like the fullness of the Father's plan is not finished until Jesus not only does his work here, but then ascends back to glory with the Father. He's saying, glorify me, lift me back up to that place that we once had. This is amazing. Like, in God, you have this display 
of perfect glory and perfect humility, both at the same time. What Jesus prays explicitly here is that he and uh, the Father experience kind of a perfection of unity and, and love and joy and relationship as they shared in glory together with the Holy Spirit before anything else had ever been made. They shared in this beautiful, pristine relationship. And in the greatest act of humility... Jesus didn't just lay aside the privileges of deity. Jesus didn't just lay aside kind of the blinding, glorious light that emanated from his very being. He didn't just press pause on receiving constant, angelic worship with all of the angels gathered around the throne. He didn't just walk away from perfect and loving communion with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. And he didn't just walk away from a place of perfect peace that was sinless. He did all of that and lived in a fallen world. He, so, so you add what he left and then what he added to his circumstance and you see the degree of his humility. He experienced everything that we have experienced from the womb to adolescence to adulthood to a murderous and gruesome death and remained sinless in all of it. And now that he has risen, Jesus has been glorified again. And he deserves every bit of glory that he has received. Because had he not walked away from the glory, you and I never would have been invited into this relationship with the Father. He stepped out of the glory that he shared with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the love that, uh, the, the thing that they enjoy together in order that he could invite us into the very same relationship that they shared with each other before creation. Right, that's why he did it. He stepped out of glory because there was this pristine, perfect relationship. He stepped out and he suffered all of those things to create space for us in that relationship that they share. So we weren't just created to glorify Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has proven that he deserves all of our glory. So Christian, you have been given the privilege to approach God in relationship. But the why behind that privilege is his glory. You are a revelation of his glory. You exist to continue to be a revelation of his glory. You enjoy authentic relationship with him for his glory. You encounter and overcome trials for his glory. You exist for his glory and your prayer is meant to display these realities. So your prayer is not merely for you. It's for his glory. Now, this idea is revolutionary for me because when I struggle to wrap my head around how to pray for something more than the things that I want, right, when I let this aspect of prayer shape me and when I watch others pray along these lines, when I let the, uh, the prayers uh, reflect that I am currently caught up in something much bigger than this present moment and my present wants and needs, it fills me with an incredible sense of peace and love and it humbles me. That's why we sang that song, Worthy of It All, that last song, before we started uh, you know, the sermon here this morning, we sang that song, Worthy of It All, to reflect these realities, because it comes from this passage in, in Revelation, Revelation 5, 8 through 10, verse 8 says, and when he had taken the scroll, 
The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The scroll that he's holding, this is Jesus who's holding the scroll, it represents the resolution to all the wrong and sin and brokenness that has overrun this world. And the picture that we have is that the Lamb of God who died to give us life in all of his glory is holding that scroll with all of heaven worshiping him. And it says that our prayers, as we pray them, are caught up in this grand story of the worth and value of Jesus. So that Jesus, as he holds the scroll, our prayers rise up and they are the incense that fills the room, the worship room of the throne room of God. And verse 9 says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Our prayers are like the context of the hosts of heaven saying this to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The whole point of this is to say when you are, when you are praying you are caught up in something so much bigger than yourself and your present needs. So even when the need feels massive like you don't know what you could possibly do with the need, remember that when you pray, that you first and foremost have this opportunity to pray for God's glory. All right, the third important aspect of Jesus' prayer, influence to his prayer is this, it is good news. John 17, two through three, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who, uh, those whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, so Jesus, as we watch him kind of in the middle of this thought in his prayer, he is found cel celebrating the gift of salvation and the message that in a world full of death, he came to extend eternal life. Right, so, so get this. When we pray to God, God doesn't need to know the good news. He already knows it. He's the one who wrote the story, right? Uh, but he is after, like, he, when Jesus interlaces the good news into his prayer, it does a few things for us, and that's kind of what I want to look at. What does it accomplish? Well, the first thing it does is when Jesus prays the good news out loud and speaks it, it proclaims the good news, right? So it's an active act, or like, it's a way of him uh, kind of extending proclamation. So when you pray, everyone you pray for has an opportunity to hear about something about how God is saving those who are lost and extending opportunity for life and relationship with him. So if they're not a Christian, this person that you're praying for, and you include some of the gospel, then you give them an opportunity to hear some of the gospel when you pray for them. And if they are a Christian, you get the opportunity to encourage them in the gospel that they have believed. Right? So it proclaims the good news. The second thing that it does is that it prompts gratefulness in those who are praying. So as you gather with a group of believers and you pray the gospel and other people hear you pray, Jesus, thank you for saving us. Like you get to, you hear them say that and you go, yes, Jesus, thank you for saving us. Like that, that resonates with your soul. And now you get multiple prayers at the same time reinforcing that one idea. 
Another thing that it does is that it places our attention on the mission of God in and through the life of the person that you are currently praying for. So as you think about, thank you for Jesus, who you sent, and thank you for saving us, and you did not just save us to let us sit here, you saved us for a purpose. And as I reflect on the fact that you saved us for a purpose, there's a purpose in this person's life. Right? So, so you're, as you think about the salvation that Jesus was sent for, it implicitly gets us thinking about the thing that we might be sent for. And then the final thing that it does is, again, it humbles us because it puts us in a place of recognizing our most significant need first. Right? So when we all approach God, we all approach him with the same need. Now, we have different felt needs, that we, we have different experiences, and we might come with those needs, but we all approach him with the same primary need, that we are broken because of our sin and we need to be saved. Right? And so, so everybody comes to him with the same primary need, and as we pray the gospel in our prayers, it humbles us again because it makes us recognize what our most significant need always has been, that we were dead under the weight of our trespasses and sins, that our actions and attitudes wrought death, but Jesus saw fit to come and forgive and grant us life. So he picks up the idea again in verse eight. He says this, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So here we see Jesus reflecting on the interaction that the disciples have had with the good news, the words that the Father has given him. That they have it, that they have it to extend it to others, that they believed it. And as Jesus looks at this reality, the way the good news has actually interacted with the disciples, it is this that is going to inform the rest of the way that he prays for them. Right, as he seeks God on behalf of his disciples, he is thinking about the gospel mission and the part that they have to play. And so this draws us to the final influence of his prayer. He is influenced by their current felt need. Right, the current felt need does inform a significant amount of how he prays for them. And it's important when we pray that we actually address the current felt need. But each of those pieces that we talked about beforehand established the framework for how we approach that need. So next week, this is what we're going to do. We're actually going to get into the details of how Jesus is, he, how he focuses on their specific need as he prays. Right, that's what we're going to consider next week. But for now, I just want to ask the question, so what? So what? Number one, healthy prayer keeps narcissism in check. Right, so let's think about um, high school-aged Alex who didn't really understand the value of prayer, but I begrudgingly went to that prayer meeting and the Lord used it to shape me in significant ways. One of the ways that it shaped me was to help me connect my prayer life to an understanding that my life is not my own. As I listened to these other mature believers pray and the way that they prayed, I, I began to just become overwhelmed with how much I need to be emptied of myself. Right, like more often than not, I realize I need God to break me. More often than not, I, need, I realize that I need God to humble me. Uh, that uh, I, more often than not, I just realize that I need to recognize my place in all of this. 
And from there, as, as I am humbled in that place to simply celebrate the relationship that I have been granted by this glorious God who has created everything and invited me into relationship. So prayer is not merely about me, nor is it merely about the person that I'm praying for. And healthy prayer will shape my soul to say, I must decrease and he must increase. Okay, so number two. Learn to pray by praying with other mature believers. It is actually my hope that our small groups will present opportunities for us to pray together. It is my hope that us in our homes and our families have, are taking opportunities to pray together. When we gather around tables with other believers, that I, I hope that we'll take some of that opportunity to pray with each other. But like, we have prayer meetings here because prayer is a ministry of the church, and, and that's also an opportunity for us to pray together. Right, so, so if you're like, man, I, I'm trying, you know, you'd say I need to pray with other mature believers, but I don't have much opportunity. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, you know, there are these places where you might have opportunity to pray with other mature believers. Right, so if you're looking for a chance to pray, I'd just like to let you know, Wednesday, March 29th, that's our next prayer meeting here at the church, 6 p.m., Wednesday, March 29th. It's another chance to experience the renovating power of praying with other people. So learn to pray by praying with other mature believers. And then number three. You are, and you might be able to like put only in here, but it's not always the case. You are the model for prayer to your spheres of influence. For some people, you may be the only model that they have. Right? The values that Jesus had in his prayer, the things that informed and shaped the way that he prayed, they were revolutionary. Nobody prayed like Jesus prayed. And for what it's worth... To many people, those values are still revolutionary. Right? When you pray out loud for someone else, and I get that it's scary and it feels like a risk, but what you do for them is you give them the gift of a window into your relationship with God. Right? And as they have that gift, because most people, especially if they don't spend a lot of time in church or they've been formed and shaped by some kind of tradition that says you have to use these prayers to mediate your relationship with God. Most people don't have the idea of what it means to have an authentic relationship with their father. And so as you pray for them, they actually begin to see God can draw that near to somebody. Somebody can be that close to God and get the sense that as you pray for them, God is drawing near to them in the same way that he has drawn near to you. Right? You have the privilege and the opportunity as you pray for another person to show them that. And that's revolutionary for people who don't experience that. Most people are not used to seeing that. Right? Their impression of prayer is a cold religious activity. And while it may be read with heart behind it, it is not generated out of the relationship that that individual has with God. And so you go and you speak to God as a dad, uh, as he is a dad who loves you. And you open up the possibility in that person's mind that maybe God could love them too. So prayer for others is this massive opportunity for us to help meet uh, other people, meet and experience God, understand what God cares about. And as we model healthy prayer for them, we are extending an invitation to them into relationship with a God who loves perfectly. So church, would you pray with me, please? 
Lord, I just, I, I thank you for speaking this prayer, and I know that this prayer in many ways, um, it was not just something to learn from, to instruct how we are to pray, but they were prayers that you spoke for our sakes and for the sakes of the disciples. Lord, to see the way in which you cared, in which you um, drew near to felt needs. I'm blessed by this opportunity to watch that, but, but not only that, Lord, I pray that you would just in, instruct our um, ways of praying, shape our ways of praying, help us to learn from you that our prayers might become powerful, that they might become compelling to those around us. Lord, I thank you that you draw near to us, and I'm particularly thankful this morning that we do have the kind of relationship where we can know that we are your children, that we can speak to you freely because Jesus is mediating this relationship and his blood is powerful to cover over everything that would keep us from you. And so, Lord, uh, this morning, we, um, we pray that you would be glorified in our continued worship and our remembrance of you. And glorified as, as we walk out of this place to extend um, good news, stories of your glory, and the wonder of a relationship with you to other people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.